Well, two weeks ago, um, we were looking at the first two verses here of Romans 12. And we're at this juncture now in Romans where Paul is shifting from 11 chapters of doctrinal, um, 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 I want to say argumentation, but, but he's not arguing, but just the presentation of doctrinal truths, much of it centering on the person of Jesus Christ and our position with him. To now the practice, it was often Paul's... Um, um, his, his method in writing these epistles, he would focus on the doctrinal, then move to the practical. And, and here he's, he's laying out for us what our, our response ought to be to all that Christ is and is in us. And that response is one of a presentation of a yielding of ourselves to him as living sacrifices. And in that, that he works in us to transform us and to renew us, to renew our minds all to the glory of God where his perfect will, which is good and acceptable and perfect, would be manifest in our lives. Having done that, having recognized the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his wisdom, his glory, the work that he's done in our lives, the only reasonable thing left to do is to present ourselves to him. And once that has taken place, the very first characteristic that God manifests in our lives is one of humility, where we think accurately about ourselves. And then secondly, an understanding and an appreciation of the body of Christ and our place in it and the members and how each of them, all of us, work together to the glory of Jesus. So it's about family life here in these next verses. Begins with humility and moves to the extended family. And we all know there is no greater institution on earth that God has created than the family. But it's also the hardest. So hard to discern between what are just personality quirks and what are gifts. And, and, and it's true within families, it's true within the church. Some things are gifts, some things are personalities, some things are culture. And it's hard to, to draw the line. But there are a number of things that God has clearly stated concerning gifts in the family and the body of Christ. We'll go over some of those this morning. We could spend weeks just looking at gifts and how it all works together in the body. So I am not going to exhaust it this morning. But there are just a few things that I would want to highlight here about spiritual gifts and the working and functioning of the body of Christ. We know that, you know, I I remember growing up as a kid and... and, um, and it's before the, the you know the the prosperities of the '90s and 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 all and and um, and I can remember not every family having all the tools that were always needed for taking care of a household, and that was okay. You just got on the phone or walked down the street and you borrowed what you didn't have, because you knew the guy down the street had it and he'd be more than willing to loan it to you because you're going to loan to him what he doesn't have. And that even extended to your children. And so there were times when somebody would call up my dad and say, Porter, um, can I borrow your boys? And so he would loan out the boys. And, and, but it was okay. You know, that, that if, whether it was a hedge trimmer or, or some other kind of equipment or even your boys. Because everybody recognized that they all had needs. And you were devoted to each other. And you loved each other. And you were willing to supply for one another's needs. Sometimes people get taken advantage of, just like in the body of Christ. Sometimes they, they, but but God has meant it not for, as he'll say in another place, not for the wealth of somebody else and for the poverty of somebody else, but he's meant it for equality. We all have needs. 
No person has all the gifts. We need the body of Christ just like we need Christ. And there is a direct correlation there. Jesus is essential to our Christian life. And Jesus in his wisdom has determined that he will meet our spiritual needs in part through the body of Christ. It's Christ meeting those needs, but he's using the various gifts of the ministry of, uh, of, the, of the body of Christ to meet those needs. So let's just start here in verse 3. For, the, for through the grace given to me, and so Paul acknowledges here, it's only by the grace of God that he's an apostle. He has no claim on this on his own, but by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And so one of the things, first of all, obviously we're to think. And sometimes Christians think that thinking stops when you become a Christian. You just, it's all by impression. And we just follow the impulse and the impressions of the Spirit. And here the very first thing after presenting ourselves to Him is think. Think. Your mind doesn't go into park when you present yourself to Christ. But if anything, your mind should be activated. We love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christians ought to be thinking people. And we ought to think rightly about ourselves. You may be the tallest one here today. I obviously am not in that category. Whenever we take a group picture, I'm always on the front row. But if you're the tallest one here today, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. Unless your parents tortured you and put you on a rack. You had nothing to do with it. It just, it's genetics. You happen to be tall. And it makes no more sense for you to boast in your height than it does for any person to boast in the giftings that he has. Now, one of the things that we have to look at is, is there a difference between abilities and the gifts that come by being a Christian? And I believe that there are. I think that there are gifts that God gives us that are just... um, natural consequences of being born to the parents that we've been born to. So they're natural abilities. Still, they came from God because God knew what parents were going to have. God knew the kind of influences we were going to have. And so even the abilities that we are born with are the gifts of God. And I can't take credit for them. They are God's grace. Once we become born again, we are also given another gift. And we'll look at that in a minute from 1 Corinthians 12 where it's called a manifestation of the Spirit of God within our lives. And so we have, we have abilities that were given to us when we were born. And we will have at least another, for lack of a better term, ability or gift that is given to us when we receive Christ. And so I have to think about these things accurately. Nobody has all the gifts. That means everyone is in need of someone else. We are not islands. We are members of a body. And the members, none of the members can exist in isolation. I like my ten fingers, but I am absolutely sure that if I were to cut any of them off, they would not reproduce. They would die. They cannot live in isolation. And no Christian can live in isolation from the body of Christ. Not to say that he's going to physically die, But he cannot spiritually thrive in isolation. God intends for him 
for every Christian to live as part of a community. Now, I don't think that these gifts extend only to church on Sunday morning. Because think about it. Many of these gifts have nothing to do with Sunday morning, 11 o'clock hour. The gift of hospitality cannot be practiced during this hour. The gift of serving is not going to be practiced during this hour to much degree. And, so, and that is true with many of the gifts. God didn't intend for us to think that these things are relegated to some spiritual hour on Sunday morning. But these are gifts that God gives to the body. And they are to be practiced with the body throughout the seven days of the week. That we are in, we are in fellowship with other Christians and we are recognizing our need for that fellowship. That we cannot thrive spiritually in isolation. I need other people. And they need me. And it is not pride to acknowledge that. Again, think accurately. It can become pride to say, I am the tallest person in the room. It shouldn't be, though. But we can accurately and truthfully say, if you're the tallest person in the room, I am the tallest person in the room. That's just a fact. And so there's no pride necessarily in acknowledging the truth. We ought to be able to humbly acknowledge the truth that we are indeed saved. That our sin has been forgiven and we can have absolute assurance that we will be with Christ in heaven forever because of what God has said. That drives unbelievers up the wall because they hear nothing but pride when we say we know that we are forgiven Know that we are saved and know that we will be in eter- with, with, the, with God in, et- in heaven for eternity. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Because they hear pride. And in fact, there may be pride, in, but it doesn't have to be. We ought to be able to think soberly. It is the grace of God. It isn't me. It is God's grace. And so that's why the last part of verse 3, where it says, think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now this is the first of, that phrase actually is the first of, of a couple different times in this first paragraph where we wonder what is this proportion of faith or measure of faith. And it, it could be that, that as the translators typically translate it, that Paul is saying every person has a different measure of faith. That God gave. Some have great faith, some have small faith. It could be that he's saying that people have different measures of the gift that God has given. And Paul does make reference to that in 1 Corinthians 12. For example, a number of people may have the gift of evangelism. But that doesn't mean every person with the gift of evangelism is going to have that gift to the same measure. And so some people who have the gift of evangelism, God will use to see many people come to Christ. And other people, very few people may come to Christ, but they both have the gift of evangelism. And as we look at in 1 Corinthians 12, again, the effect, the ministry that takes place is God's business, not the person with the gift. But there's another way of looking at this. And that is that we are to think concerning ourselves and the gift that God has given us in accordance with that which is true. In other words, God has given a, a, a measurement, a, a standard by which we can measure what is true 
about ourselves and about spiritual gifts. And, and that is also very much, I think, what Paul is trying to say here. That God has given an objective standard, an objective measurement for looking at what we call spiritual gifts. Now that doesn't rule out the mystery. Again, we're talking about the Holy Spirit and what He is free and able and, and powerful to do in our lives. And there are going to be things that we just go, wow, God, blows my mind. But there will be other things that may not be of the Spirit. And He, has, he wants us to think about what we see according to the measure or the standard of measure that He has given us. And so just because somebody is saying, this is of the Spirit of God, He would have us to examine that manifestation of the Spirit in accordance with the Word of God every time. And so I'm not left to just my, my evaluation of whether this is the Spirit of God or not, but I'm left to what the Word of God says. Is this the Spirit of God or not? Paul said when he wrote to the Galatians, he says, if an, even an angel should appear to you from heaven, you actually see an angel, and he gives to you a gospel contrary to what I gave to you, then reject it. And he's not saying the big thing was with him, because he says, if I should come to you or any other apostle and deliver to you a message contrary, reject it. Whether it comes from an apostle or it comes from an angel, if it is contrary to the standard, the measure of God's word, you know what to do with it. You've got to let it go. And he doesn't question that it may be an apostle. He doesn't question that it may be an angel. He questions the validity, but even if it is an angel or apostle, that doesn't settle it. It has to be evaluated according to God's word. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, many members, and they do not all have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So there are many members in Christ's body, but there is one body. And all those members need each other. Now, I, I first looked at this and I thought, you know, it, what Paul is saying is, no one is indispensable. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, everyone is indispensable. And yes, no person is essential. But the gifts that God has given are essential to the body. Whether it's a gift of, of tongues or a gift of, of service, gift of administration, gift of whatever. He says these gifts are essential to the body of Christ and therefore the people who have them are also important. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So everybody's got different gifts, and the gifts will differ in the measure of grace that is given. Let each exercise them accordingly. And here's the second part that's a little tricky. If you have the gift of prophecy, then it should be exercised according to the proportion of his faith there is good reason to think the better translation would be the gift of prophecy should be exercised in keeping with the faith. 
Because faith comes with the definite article here in the Greek. It is the faith. So the prophet, or the one who has the gift of prophecy, better said, ought to be himself thinking about what he's saying in relation to the Word of God. So that it, not, it never contradicts what God is saying. This will come out in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul has an extended passage on prophecy. And he says, if somebody has a prophecy and another one is speaking, let the first one sit down and let the second one speak. And then he says this, for the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, prophecy is not viewed in the New Testament as some kind of of um, uncontrollable spirit that comes over a person where he cannot help himself, he must prophesy. God knows nothing about that. So when the Spirit of God is in control of a person, the person is not out of control. That's the point. When the Spirit of God is controlling you, you will not be out of control. Even the prophet, when he is giving a prophecy, his own spirit is still in subjection to him. It's not out of control. And so he is then to sit down and let the others pass judgment. The others being the church leadership. And they pass judgment on the basis of God's word. So God's word is the, is the ultimate authority on what anybody should claim to be a prophecy from God. This is very, very important. Is God giving prophecies today? I believe that he is. Now, I think that that opens up room for what do you mean by prophecy? You know, we have to talk about that. Again, we don't have enough time this morning to go into everything. But if God is speaking today, then anything he says has to be subjected to the Word of God. It is not in itself authoritative. I think that the prophecies that we see in the New Testament of those who have the gift of prophecy in the church, in the body of Christ are not on the same level as an apostle or the ministry of a prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament equivalency of a prophet in the New Testament is an apostle. And I believe quite firmly that the office of prophet and the office of apostle has ceased. They've been fulfilled. I don't believe that there is today an office, as it were, of king or an office of prophet, or an office of priest, because Christ has fulfilled those offices. That He is the one that all three of those pointed to, and He is the fulfillment of them. In the New Testament, the counterpart is the apostle. Both of them were giving the inerrant, eternal Word of God. And when it was given, it was to be heard, and it was to be obeyed. But the prophets in the New Testament, and we see this with Agabus and all the different ones that are mentioned, they, that what they say is to be examined. It is to be sifted. So Paul will say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, do not despise prophetic utterances, but his very next word, but examine everything carefully. So don't despise it and say it's not happening today, but neither should you embrace it as being necessarily what God is saying. Examine it carefully, which is the same thing that Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, let the prophet sit down and let the others pass judgment. Nobody has the right today to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and say something that is not in God's word. 
and then for the church just to walk in line and say, okay, this is what God has said. Very dangerous. The final authority is God's Word. I take heart when I read the New Testament and see how cautious so many of the persons in the New Testament were about claiming the activity of God on what they were doing, including the apostles. So when they were clearly being led by the Holy Spirit, for example, and Paul says that the church of Antioch says it seemed good to us to set aside Paul and Barnabas for, the mission, for this work. When they write to the, to the, to the new um, Gentile believers all across um, Europe and the church there in Acts, in Acts 15 says, it seemed good to us. They had clearly heard from God. When Paul was on his missionary journey and he can't go north or south or east or, and, or, and, and he seems to be blocked in and then he has a Macedonian vision and the men got together and Paul shared his vision. They said, it, it seemed to us that God was saying, go across to Macedonia. I just hear a caution in most of these men when they were clearly hearing from God. They were not typically so bold as to say, thus saith the Lord, or God has said. There seemed to be a basic humility, which again is the first manifestation of a life presented to him. It may be absolutely sure that I heard from God, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong, especially when it's a a situation where God has not spoken to it, it would seem, in his word. I might be wrong. So I'm going to be very careful about saying it was the Lord. Cornelius has an appearance by an angel. There is no doubt that it's an angel. And yet when he sends for Peter, he says, simply a man in shining garments appeared to me. Again, humility, caution. I think it needs to be exercised more often. Just a few basic thoughts about these gifts. We see here prophecy is mentioned first, and then service, and then teaching, and then exhortation, leading, and then um, showing mercy. Um, and, And I hope I didn't miss any there. But here's the thing. Romans 12 is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Ephesians is not an exhaustive list. And 1 Peter 4 is not not an exhaustive list. There is at least four different places where spiritual gifts are mentioned in the New Testament. And none of the four lists are the same. They're not even the same. And, And so it would seem that none of them are exhaustive. It may in fact be that there are more gifts that God has given to the body than what are mentioned here. We can't say for sure. But it would, it would lend us to believe that because none of the lists are the same, that none of the lists are complete. We also note, and this is where I want you to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just a few basic observations here at the front end of this chapter about the spiritual gifts. First of all, verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one, speaking by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts. Now all this is about spiritual gifts. The very first verse of 1 Corinthians 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then he wants us to know, in verse 3, that spiritual gifts, I believe this is what he's saying, will always bring glory to Jesus Christ. Always. Now that's just a nonsense. Yeah, sure, we understand that. Spiritual gifts will always bring glory to Jesus Christ. 
But this is the thing. Surely, if somebody is exalting um, himself or, or putting down Jesus, then we would say, that can't be the Lord. But, I, but there's more here. Keeping in mind that Paul, in both Romans, Ephesians, and in 1 Corinthians 12, talks about the grace that is given for exercising the gift. The gift itself is by grace. But he also talks about the gift needs to be exercised in keeping with the grace that is given. Sometimes Christians will exceed the grace of God. And when they do, Christ is not glorified in that gift. I, I don't know, you know, I'll get to this point in a second maybe. I can maybe say, I don't know what my gift is. But I can say, okay, I believe this is what my gift is. doesn't really matter a whole lot. But if I say, this is what I believe my gift is, teaching. And then I come to that conclusion, my gift is teaching. And then I just said, well, that's my gift. And then I go out and do it in my own energy, in my own flesh. It does not glorify Jesus. Even though the gift is being exercised, as it were. It's being exercised by me. It's not in keeping with the grace of God. And that's... that's I don't, that blows my mind. But that's what's happening here in Corinth. That Paul doesn't question that the gift is being exercised. He questions whether it is being exercised by God. In keeping with the grace of God. You see? And I just go, if it comes from God, then how can it be exercised by man? But it can. Spiritual gifts can be exercised in our own flesh. And they will not then bring glory to Jesus. How do I know when the spiritual gift is being exercised by the Spirit and not by me? Jesus gets the glory. He truly gets the glory in the body of Christ and in my own heart. Christ gets the glory. When ministries begin to be about things other than Jesus, I don't care how much spiritual gifts are talking about or how many miracles are being done or anything else. If someone is getting the glory other than Jesus... Something's wrong. If a man's getting the glory, even if the Holy Spirit is getting the glory, something is wrong. Because these gifts are to result in the glory of Jesus Christ. Now look at what he says here in these other verses, just quickly. Verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries. So again, if, if ten people have the gift of evangelism, that doesn't mean they will have the same ministry. They have the same gift, and they have the same spirit, but they do not have the same ministry. God, the Holy Spirit, gives the gifts. And the Holy Spirit gives the ministry. That isn't ours. We don't build ministries. If we do, again, it's us, and it's the flesh. The ministry comes from the Lord. Verse 6, And there are varieties of effects. So, for example, you can have, how many Bible colleges exist in the United States? How many churches exist in the United States? Hopefully, every Bible college, every church is a ministry which the Holy Spirit brought into being. But even if they all are, they will not have the same effect. They will not have the same consequence to their ministry. That, too, is God's business. And that's true for every one of our lives. I am to think soberly about myself. Yes, God has given me a gift and He's given you a gift. 
It was God's business what gift he gave us. And it is God's business how that gift will minister to others. And it is God's business what effect that ministry will have on the lives of others. When I became director at His Hill, one of the things, pieces of advice that was given to me, do not be concerned yourself with the breadth of your ministry. Only be concerned with the depth of it. And God will take care of the rest. It's His business. And most of the time, you know, and you talk to people that, that have served the Lord all their lives. And this is one thing nobody has an accurate picture on. And that is, how has God used me? Nobody has an accurate picture on that. God doesn't intend for us to know how we have been used. It's God's business. Our business is Him. Which brings me to another point. Do we need to know what our spiritual gifts are in order to be spiritually effective? And I would say, absolutely not. It is good to know what your spiritual gift is. But, think about this. If the Holy Spirit gives the gift, and if the gift is a manifestation of His presence which He brings about, then I don't need to even know that there's such a thing as gifts. All I need to know is that God would have me to abide in Christ, to live humbly and dependently upon Him. And as I do, He will manifest the gift which He has given me. Look at verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Every single person has the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. And that's what the gift is. It's one of the best definitions, I think, you know, it comes closest to being a definition of what a spiritual gift is. It is proof, it is manifestation in life that, that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And every person has this. Every single person. Again, one person may be serving, another person hospitality, somebody else teaching, somebody else leading. God made, made the distinction on that. But every single person is a member of the body, and every single person has a manifestation of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, To each one a gift has been given. How many gifts? Maybe there's more than one. Somebody's going to go over there. Maybe there's more than one, but we know that every person has at least one. Now, I have another thought concerning this. Again, my thoughts are rambling a little bit, but I I just kind of want to work through some of the key things that come up here. I think, and again, in keeping with 1 Corinthians 12, that the gift that He has given will be manifest throughout our lives, and it will motivate us throughout our lives. That in a sense, it it is something that is there that we don't even are always even conscious of. It's like sometimes you're not even conscious that you're hungry unless you're really, really hungry. But it's just kind of there in the background. And, and I think that every person, when he becomes a Christian, as God comes to live in him, God puts a motivation in him. And that motivation is in line with the gift that he has been given. And it'll be there throughout his life. But there are different needs that arise and circumstances that arise where I may need to be graced by God, gifted by God, in a way that is not in keeping with what my basic motivation is. For example, again, I may have a basic motivation in all that I do to see people come to know Christ, a gift of evangelism. 
but I may be without money. Or, and, I, and, I, and I need financial help. Well, I would hope and trust that God, who I cry out to for help, will supply, and probably He's going to use the body of Christ. And very likely, He will not even use somebody with the gift of giving. You don't have to have the gift of giving to give. And, and again, I may be flush with money and see my brother in need, and I, or even if I'm not flush with money, I just have more than I need. And I see my brother with need, and, I, and, and God moves me. Give to him. But God, I don't have the gift of giving. Well, right now you do. I am giving you the grace right now to give to your brother that's in need. Don't tell me you don't have the gift. And see, again, I don't want to limit God to a particular motivational spiritual gift which is a manifestation of His presence throughout my life. I don't want to limit Him to that. Because God wants to use me across the board. And He will give grace according to the need. But that grace comes and goes with the needs. It's not that God is giving me different gifts all the time. He is simply giving me enabling grace in the need that has arisen. But it's not going to always be there. But there will be a motivational manifestation gift of the Spirit that is there throughout my life. The other grace comes and goes. Which brings me to another point. When you read through the different gifts that are listed in Scripture, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians in particular, you should do this. Go through and see how many of those gifts are to be practiced by every member of the body. And I think what you'll find is all of them. For example, like I just mentioned, giving. The scripture says that we are all to work so as to have enough to share with those who are in need. We all are to be givers. Mercy. We are all to show mercy. Serving. We are to serve one another. Teaching. We are all to be involved in teaching one another. Teach one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs, the scripture says. Leading. We are all going to be in positions to lead. Whatever the gift is, there is a verse in Scripture that would exhort the body of Christ to practice it. So how in the world do you practice a gift that you don't even possess? In the same way you practice the one you do possess. By faith in Jesus Christ. You respond to Him in the need that is there. And He manifests it. He gives us the grace for it. The purpose, to summarize a little bit of what I've said, the purpose is to manifest His, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. It is to glorify Jesus Christ. And then the third thing that's mentioned, it is to edify the body. If you'll flip over just quickly to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. He says... Um, just speaking this and picking up in verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consultation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. His point simply 
is that the gifts are to be used for the edification of the church. Paul speaks about this also in, in Ephesians chapter 4. That the whole body might be built up to a mature man. God gives gifts for the edifying of the body. Now, tongues would seem to be the exception. Because as he says here in 1 Corinthians 14, when a person speaks in tongues, the only person edified is the one speaking in tongues. And that's because nobody else understands. And in fact, he himself doesn't even understand. And Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 14. And I have many friends who speak in tongues, and they've told me the same when I've asked them. They do not understand what they're saying. But they would all say they are personally being edified when they speak in tongues. And I can't discount that. That troubled me for a long time, why God would give a gift that would not edify anyone but the one person, when in fact gifts are given for the edification of the body. And I've come to, th- to relax about it. Because if that one person is being edified, and if he is a co-member of the body of Christ, and when one member rejoices, they all rejoice, and when one member suffers, they all suffer. Well, if that believer, that brother, is speaking in tongues and he is personally edified, then I ought to let it edify me. Not meaning that he needs to speak in tongues in front of me, but I should let his edification spill over into my life and not get too bent out of shape about the fact that he alone is edified. We're part of a body. And his edification can be my edification. But that doesn't mean I'm going to understand what he says, and it doesn't mean that he should be speaking in tongues when there is no interpreter. There ought to be an interpreter when tongues is being spoken. 1 Corinthians 14 is very clear on that. Unless the person clearly is alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And it would seem nobody even knew that. Because he, it would seem, was speaking in tongues alone. Well, in that case, no need for an interpreter. The individual is being edified. But if it comes, if it's in public, within the body of Christ, then there needs to be an interpreter. Which brings up another question. Now, there's so many things. They're just spider webs. When, again, when are the gifts to be exercised? All the time. The gifts are not just for Sunday morning. So, if there are guidelines and restrictions put on the gifts, are those guidelines and restrictions only for Sunday morning? I have a hard time saying yes on that. Because, again... For example, a parachurch ministry like His Hill. We are not a church. We make no presumption of being a church. But we are believers who are together. We are a segment of the body of Christ. And so it would seem to me, if I, for example, cannot forbid the speaking in tongues, because the scripture says not to forbid it, then I also am not free to ignore the restrictions on speaking in tongues. I was speaking to a brother one time. He's part of a parachurch ministry, much like his hill. And he speaks in tongues, and and his staff speak in tongues. And I said, is there an interpreter? And he said, no, there is not an interpreter because we are not a church. Then I said, well, then what if somebody were to come in and say, stop speaking in tongues? And he said, I would say, the scripture says, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. 
And I'm thinking, you can't have it both ways, brother. If the scripture not to forbid speaking in tongues applies to you, then the scripture there must be an interpreter applies to you. It goes hand in hand. And where you are speaking in tongues in the presence of other people, there ought to be an interpreter. It ought to be one at a time, not several at a time. One at a time, three or four at the most. Clear guidelines that he has given to the body of Christ. Not, I don't think, just to the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning. Just a couple more things, and we'll wrap it up. About prophets and apostles. Glad we're just about out of time. As I've mentioned, my belief is the office is closed. There are no prophets or apostles today in the sense of an office. There are, there, the only offices in the church, the body of Christ, are elder and deacon. And perhaps deaconess, which would just be the deacon category. There is not even an office of pastor. It is elder and deacon are the only offices mentioned in the body of Christ. No others. So Paul did not tell Timothy to go and appoint apostles. He said, go and appoint elders in every place. If you define apostle in its most restricted sense as someone who is sent, because that's what the word means, a sent one. I have heard people taking that very limited, restricted sense to refer to the gift of being a missionary as being the gift of apostleship. I can accept that. But I want us to be clear about our terms. If you mean somebody who has the authority to today being to speak the eternal, inerrant word of God, then I would say that is not the case. The office closed with the death of the last apostle and, this, and the closing of the scripture. When you go back and look at what the... What the um, um, Bible people, the contemporaries of when the Bible was written and afterwards, what they viewed about the Bible, it's very clear. The early church believed that John was the last apostle and the office was closed. So this idea today of a succession of apostolic authority is not what the early church believed. This idea today that God is raising up a new generation of apostles is not what the early church believed, nor is it what Scripture affirms. When you look at, at what was going on with the ministry of Jesus, one of the reasons they wanted to be so clear about who John the Baptist was is because they understood from Malachi, Zechariah, and, and, um, and Haggai that the next prophet to arise would be the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. That's why we call the 400 years after those three prophets as being the period of silence. Because even Jerusalem, all the Jews recognized, there is no prophet. 
And there will not be a prophet until the one comes who announces the Messiah, which was John the Baptist. And so when First and Second Maccabees, for example, were being written, there is no claim in those books that they are the Word of God. Because the Maccabees say themselves in those books, we are waiting for a prophet to arise. They were not prophetically written. And nobody would accept anything. That's why when people come along today and they say, what about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the the Epistle of Barnabas? And we're going, people that really want to be honest about this, they're going, this is ridiculous. It's truly ridiculous. One, you can read the stuff and say it, it does not come close to measuring the Scripture. And secondly, it was unanimous on, a part, on, on the part of both the Old Testament and the New Testament that these offices have closed. And so if you have a book that's written, either during the period of silence, 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist, or a book that's written after, John the, after the, the, the Apostle John, it cannot be the Word of God. So when people claim today to be apostles, ask them what they mean. And if you hear authority, if you hear one who has been raised up to lead the church, run for the hills. If they're talking about being a missionary, one that God has equipped to send out, Give your amen. But the office does not exist. It is closed, as with the office of prophet. The focus should always be on the giver and not on the gift. We should not limit God to the particular gift that he has given, but to be available to Christ for all that he wants to do. And... I'm sorry, I've just been rough with this sermon and, and not really very smooth with it. But again, it's such a big topic and, and I've struggled with just how far to go with it. But I will wrap it up with a poem. How about that? And I'm borrowing this from um, um, what I saw in, in John MacArthur's commentary and it's by A.B. Simpson. Great little poem. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver alone. Once I sought healing, now himself alone. I really appreciate that. You know, it all comes down, we can just wrangle so much about these gifts and everything and get so caught up in them. It's been, it's been our history at least for the last hundred years in the church, especially in my lifetime. And, and it's so unfortunate. Become so divisive when the very reason that God gave these gifts was for the unity of the body, not the division of the body. And when it starts to get divisive, I think we just have to gently and with grace encourage one another to come back to Jesus. It's not about the gifts per se. The gifts will end. I don't believe any of them have ended personally. I believe they will all end. And 1 Corinthians 13 speaks about that. They were never meant to be permanent. They were meant to be manifestations of Christ during this time. But when we step into glory, we will know fully, even as we've been fully known. And, and there will be no longer any need for a spiritual gift. But at this time, we need them. We need the members of the body of Christ, all of them. And these should never be sources of division. But they should rather unify us. We need one another. 
Not everybody is going to show hospitality, but boy, we sure need people to be hospitable. Everybody should practice hospitality, but not everybody is going to have the gift. Everybody should teach, but not everybody is going to have the gift. So we shouldn't compare ourselves one against the other. But again, Romans 12, 3, think about yourself accurately. I'm not the end all. None of us are. We need each other, and the gifts have been given to unify us, not to divide us. I'll close this in prayer.